morning, Pastor Stephen. Good to see you. Good morning, Graham Emanuel. How are you today? Hey, I just want to repeat what Pastor Jay said. The voices in the singing during worship has been so encouraging. I want to encourage you guys to keep that up and, and to keep singing. One of the ways that we serve each other as a church family is actually by, by singing loudly and singing with a joyful sound and a joyful voice during our time of worship. Because just think about it. You may be coming to church on Sunday and you may be discouraged, or you may be going through trials, or you may be struggling with doubt. And then to be in a room where you're surrounded by your church family, belting all around you, how great is our God, how great thou art, that's a way that your church family is ministering to you by, by proclaiming that to you while you're singing. And so in the same way, do that for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We minister to each other as a church when we sing the words of praise loudly for, for those around us to hear. And you guys are doing that in a great way. I want to continue to encourage you in that and to think of worship as a way to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Another way that we can love our brothers and sisters in Christ is by praying together. So let's all bow our heads and close our eyes and pray that God works through his word, not just individually for every seat here in every chair, but for us congregationally as a community, may we pray that God's word shapes who we are as his body. So pray with me to that end. Heavenly Father, may your word cut through us and shape us. May it convict us and encourage us so that we walk out of this room more like your son, Jesus Christ, than we were when we walked in. In your son, Jesus' name, amen. In 2017, one of the greatest hoaxes in recent memory took place in what was called the Fire Festival. That's spelled F-Y-R-E. It's worth a Google search if you've never heard of it. The Fire Festival was one of the biggest scams to happen in the past several years. The Fire Festival was supposed to be this ultimate, amazing, week-long music festival that was going to happen on one of the islands in the Caribbean. They put out the coolest website, they put out posters, they put out branding, and they talked about all the great things that were going to happen at this week-long festival. That for only a couple thousand bucks per ticket, you could have a private jet fly you to this island, you could stay for a week at this amazing cabana and listen to the hottest and greatest music artists that were on the world today. It was the coolest event. You had to be there if you were anyone. And they were pushing it and promoting it all over the world, so much so that when the event came, people, kids mostly from all over the world, most of them the sons of millionaires and billionaires, this is all a true story, arrived on this island in hopes to enjoy this music festival that never took place. They arrived, these uh, glamorous, very rich, very spoiled children, most of them, they arrived to this island and they realized that it was just a deserted island. There was no concert, there was no musical artists, there was just a bunch of tents literally set up on the beach and they had been scammed out of their money. Even though there were advertisements 
even though there was an abundance of style, an abundance of promises to reach as many people as possible, there was ultimately no substance. And I wonder if churches are guilty of the same kind of scam. We come up with the coolest websites we possibly can. We change our name from something boring into something cool, like an active verb, like revolve or ignite church. We try to come up with the coolest programs. We try to have the biggest budget and the best graphics, all so that we hope that we can enlarge our ministry as a local church. In fact, I think if you were to open up Google Maps and look at the churches in any community, in any place in the United States, I think you would basically find churches trying to do that. They might have good intentions. They want to grow. They want to make disciples. They want to multiply. And so they reach out. They they, they try to show themselves as attractively as they possibly can. But when people show up on Sunday, they find almost like those teenagers arriving to a deserted island, that even though these local churches had plenty of style, they had no substance. And so this morning in Colossians chapter 1, Paul is going to continue to write this introduction to a church that had no style. In fact, we can bring uh, the panoramic picture that I have for us this morning. This is literally on top of the hill where Colossae used to sit. Remember, this was a very rural area. This is not a church that boasted a large city, a large metropolis where people could come to. And they didn't have anyone famous or any kind of celebrity pastor to attract congregations to their church or to attract new visitors to their church. Remember, Paul had never visited this place. As far as we know, no apostle had ever come here. This was a rural church in a rural town with no style, with nothing going for it like you might expect at a bigger, fancier church in a bigger city. Yet Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, encourages them in how they are growing and in how they are multiplying and in how they are having an effect in their region, even though they lack the things that most of us churches today think are necessary in order to grow. So look with me at Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 6 this morning. And as we start in verse 6, it is important for us to recognize that not only is this part of Paul's introduction still, remember this is a letter to an actual group of people. This is not a textbook that we find in the New Testament. This is a personal letter written to an actual congregation But that in this introduction, we find that Paul is using it not to just get through niceties, not just to express formalities like you might see in any letter, but to give a vision and to give descriptive language on what a healthy church looks like, on how to live on those two tectonic plates that we talked about last week, of having a heavenly focus while also having an earthly impact. And the reason why we know this, we can take it to the next slide, is because Paul actually follows a pattern in his introduction in Colossians chapter 1 that we know as a chiasm. A chiasm was a very important, very well-known and often used form of Hebrew poetry. We find it often in the Psalms. 
It was a very common way to express something in ancient Near Eastern literature. And Paul, being a Hebrew himself, employs it in this letter. A chiasm is when we go back and forth. It's when we have an inversion of a process. So you see here, we look at last week's sermon. It's almost like climbing a mountain where Paul says that he's praying for the Colossians. He says that he prays in thankfulness for the Colossians because of their faith in Christ and also of the love that they have for the saints and the fact that the gospel produced fruit in the Colossians as we saw in verse 5 last week. Well, now this Sunday's sermon, he's actually going to go through the same exact process, only he's going to start where he ended last week and he's going to go in the reverse. He's going to go through the same concepts, and this morning's sermon is Paul giving an example of how last week's sermon is practically played out in real life. So if last week was Paul's description of how to live on the two tectonic plates of heavenly living with an earthly impact, this week's sermon is going to show how that actually has had a result or actually has had an effect within the Colossian church. And he does that by repeating in reverse the same process that he started last week. That shows us that this just isn't any old letter. This isn't just like a high school American lit teacher who claims that there's symbolism behind every line of Huck Finn. That no, there's real intentionality with what Paul is writing here. And we see this in this clear-cut pattern that is common in the Old Testament. And that Paul, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as it says in Philippians 3, is using here. So we see that the top of the mountain, what ended our sermon last week, and what's going to begin our sermon this week, is going to be found in verse 6. Which is why it's so important that we look at the connection of that first word in verse 6 which from the ESV is which, which has come to you. He's referring to the gospel in the previous verse that we ended last week's sermon with. He's talking about how the Colossians, they had heard the gospel and how they had received the gospel. And remember, if you don't know what the gospel is, that's the good news that there is a holy God who created you, that you have broken his law and therefore deserve eternal death in hell, but that God provides you forgiveness of your sins by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die as the substitute for the punishment that you yourself earned. And that receiving him and accepting and trusting in that substitute by faith will grant you eternal life. If you have received that, Graham Emanuel, if you have received what the Colossians received in verse 5, then it should also be true of what happens in verse 6. That this gospel which has come to you, Paul says, as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul is making a powerful point here. He is claiming that if a local church is truly hearing and accepting the gospel, that it is going to result in something that is noticeable to the rest of the world, which brings us to our first point. In fact, actually, let's take it to the big idea first. The big idea is going to be the structure for the whole message that knowing God better in the church results in making God better known in the world. We can keep it there for a second. 
But that specifically, he's going to break that down into three parts. And he's going to start in those three parts, beginning in verse 6, where he makes the claim with the big idea that knowing God better in the world uh, results in making God better, uh, knowing God better in the church results in making God better known in the world, which leads us to the first point, that in authentic receiving of the gospel results in spiritual fruit that impacts others. If we claim that we have trusted in and accepted the gospel that we have heard, Graham Emanuel, and we do not have visible evidence of that being shown in our lives, then that does not reflect that we have truly accepted the gospel. When Paul writes this verse in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, he is actually quoting the book of Genesis. The language that he uses in verse 6, he borrows from Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And we can throw it up there on the screen. It says that God blessed them, this is referring to Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Paul is making the same claim about the church. He says that because you have heard the gospel, as a result, it is increasing across the entire world. It is bearing fruit. It is having an impact. It is subduing the world, which was exactly what was happening in the book of Acts and in the New Testament. Just as God called Adam and Eve to go out and to multiply, to go out and to bear fruit, Paul is making it clear that God calls the church to do the same thing. To not just be like a scam festival where we put out all of these promotions and and we try to project ourselves to the community of how great of a church we are, of how much we love Jesus, but then people actually come to our service And they don't actually see any fruit of us loving Jesus. Which, by the way, if you're here at Graham Emanuel and you're a visitor, or if you're here for the first time, I want you to let us know the kind of Jesus that you see amongst us. I want you to let me know. I want you to reach out to me and let us know as a church how we are actually bearing fruit of this gospel that we proclaim. Because God in the Bible always calls for his people to be a multiplying people. He calls for his people to have fruit. We see this in Genesis chapter 1. We also see it in Genesis chapter 2 with Abraham. When God calls his chosen people, he says clearly that part of his goal for his people is not for him to just bless them so that they can be privately benefited by it, but for them to multiply so that they can be a blessing to all the nations, a blessing to everyone in the world. This is what God said to Abraham in Genesis 22. He says, I will surely bless you. And look at what he says next. He says, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God's plan for his people has always been 
for them to grow and learn and be blessed by the Lord, but in such a way that bears fruit and multiplies and blesses those around them. God's plan for his people has always been vertical and horizontal. And we see this even in the next verse I want to show you guys. From Jeremiah chapter 3. This is a powerful, powerful example of this. God is making a promise to his people. He says, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart. We believe he's referring to the New Testament at this point. Who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, In those days, declares the Lord, look at this, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it in the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Do you see what God's saying about his people in this verse? It's the same thing that he's saying about his people in Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 22, and in Colossians chapter 1. That God blesses and chooses and saves his people in order that they may have an impact on making him known throughout the world. The Ark of the Covenant is where God's presence used to reside, but in Jeremiah it says that someday God's presence is going to reside so powerfully in his people that people won't even ask for an Ark anymore. That the idea of an Ark of a Covenant in the Holy of Holies where people could come and be in the presence of God, everyone would just go, "Eh, who cares? We have the church. We have God's people. God planned to make his presence known in, a world, in, a, in the world, not by putting himself in a box, in a tent that would be in a city, by, but by putting himself in a people that would go out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God intends for his gospel to be multiplying. If we are truly a group of people who truly believe in the hope and the good news of Jesus, it should bear fruit in us in such a way that has an impact on making more disciples. It would almost be like, to go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it would almost be like if God told Adam and Eve to bear fruit and produce and to multiply as a family, and their solution to multiplying as a family would be to put up an ad in the post office saying, wanted, kids to be our children. Or making a cool website saying, come check us out, Adam and Eve, we would be great parents. And just sitting around and hoping that kids would just wander in and become a part of their family. That's not where kids come from. A family produces and multiplies as a result of them loving each other. Adam and Eve, what they did internally in the family unit ended up resulting in what occurred externally as a family unit. By them loving each other and growing in a love for each other, it resulted in God multiplying and providing more children. That's how it works. And in the same way, God calls the church 
to grow and to multiply as a direct product of us hearing and accepting and responding to the gospel. Our impact as a church in this community will be uh, dependent on how we as a church are are hearing and receiving and applying the gospel of Jesus Christ in our life. But let's now go to the second point because Paul, he's quoting Genesis. He's explaining the importance of bearing fruit and multiplying as a result of hearing the gospel. But in verses 7 and 8, he is going to give an example of that. In his introduction to these Colossians, he is going to use Epaphras, probably the person who planted this church, as an example of the relationship between our faith in God and our love for others. Or in other words, our internal, vertical acceptance of the gospel in the way that that should have a multiplying effect. Because I am convinced that most churches who try so hard to attract outsiders and newcomers miss this most important fact, that a website ultimately will not win people to the Lord, that cool programs will ultimately not win people to the Lord, but God's people who are displaying his presence in their attitudes and behavior will bring people to the Lord. And we see this in Epaphras. No other letter in the New Testament, no other character, no other fellow worker of Paul do we see mentioned so positively as Epaphras. When Paul would mention other fellow workers, he would usually mention them within either the first couple of verses on the outside of the envelope that we talked about, or he would mention them at the end of his letter. Very rarely, hardly ever, did he mention a co-worker, a fellow brother in Christ, in the middle or in the body of his letter, except for Epaphras. We believe that Paul viewed Epaphras very favorably. And verse 7, I believe, shows us why. He says, just as you learned it, the it would be in reference to the gospel that he mentions in verse 5. He says, just as you learned it, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant or fellow slave. Paul says that he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And then we'll read verse 8 as well. And he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. We don't know a lot about who Epaphras is, but we're pretty sure that Acts chapter 19 references Paul going through this region He never planted a church in Colossae, but he probably traveled through Colossae on his way to Ephesus. And Acts 19 says that when he was in Ephesus, he preached and he won over, he made disciples. And that when he made disciples, he actually dedicated time to teach them and to reason with them in the halls of Tyrannus, and then he sent them out on other ministries. It is very likely that Epaphras was one of those people, one of those disciples in Acts chapter 19. That he had been called with the gospel. He had been taught, he had been reasoned with, he had been instructed, but not just instructed so that he himself could become more knowledgeable about God. He was instructed and he was trained and he was taught in order that he would go out and have a horizontal multiplying effect so that he could bear fruit in such a way that would reproduce in the world spiritually, just as God has called his people to reproduce 
physically. And as a result of that faithfulness, it didn't just give him a better sense of peace in his heart about his love for Jesus. It didn't just make him feel closer to Jesus as a way that we like to describe it as Americans. The result of Epaphras' faithfulness was in making other disciples. The result of that faithfulness was the love that Paul says is being shown in the Colossians. And you may notice that this connection between Epaphras' faith and the love of the saints that results from it is the same point that Paul made in last week's sermon. That as a result of our vertical faithfulness in God, it will result in a horizontal love that multiplies and expands God's church. And if, we're, if it's possible to take it back to the chiasm slide, if not, it's okay. But if it's possible to look at it again, you may notice that typically a chiasm, it will repeat perfectly in the inverse order the process that it just went through. So if we see that Paul started with pray and then faith and then love and then fruit and then fruit in the world, and then now this week he's going back to fruit in the Colossians, but then look what happens next. If he was following a perfect chiasm, you would expect the next one to be love and then faith if you wanted to follow that perfect poetic order. But he keeps the faith before the love. He breaks the chiasm to emphasize that love for the saints, a reproduction spiritually of the church, a missional attitude is always the product of our faithfulness in the Lord Jesus Christ. He breaks the chiasm to show how important the relationship is with faith being the forerunner or the precursor to love. And as a result of Epaphras and his faith in Christ that we believe that we saw grow in Acts chapter 19, we saw that we see that multiplying as a result of Epaphras planting this church in this small town of Colossae. Even though they didn't have Paul, the celebrity preacher, showing up in order to plant a new church, even though they didn't have a mega church giving this huge budget and, and the hot new associate pastor with all the talent to start this new church, even though they didn't have all those other things that we as Americans think are necessary for a successful church plant, the church in Colossae was successful because it was a product of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a product of Epaphras being faithful to learn and grow in his love for the Lord, and that resulted in fruit that resulted in a new church being created. And if we as a church want to grow, we will not grow if we as a body of believers are not seeking the Lord with the same intensity of faithfulness. If we as individuals do not have a desire to actually know God better, to be conformed into his image, to actually walk with him in a way that is going to be visible in our words and in our actions, we will make no impact on Graham Washington. Because people will come and they'll walk in and they'll realize that we as a community are really not an ecclesia, but really just a crowd. They'll recognize that we're just another group of people in another room who have high promises on how much we love each other, or how peace, uh, peaceful things are here but really they will recognize that we're pretty much just like everyone else. But we want to be the kind of people that Jeremiah predicted, where people come and they visit this church and they see God's presence so faithfully lived out in our lives that something like an Ark of the Covenant wouldn't even occur to them. 
that they would see this as even better than God's presence in the tabernacle. Because what happens internally in a church will always have external impact. And we see that being displayed and shown in this second point in verses 7 and 8. But then finally, let's skip to the third point. We'll go to the third point for the sake of time. And as we close our passage, we will see Paul in the chiasm with verse 9, which is why he says, And so, from the day we heard, look at the connection between verse 9 and verse 3 and verse 4. He says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. He's back to the prayer. He's back to praying. He's back to being thankful as a result of what he's heard. And what he's heard has been love as a product of faithfulness. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Notice the emphasis on the spirit in Paul's verses here. He doesn't just say that the Colossians have any kind of love in verse 8. He clearly says that they have a love in the Spirit. And in the same way, in verse 9, he doesn't just say, hey, I hope you get to learn a lot more about Jesus. I hope you get to learn more about systematic theology. Or I hope the sermons on Sunday really spark your interest to learn God's word more. No. He doesn't just describe a typical or a worldly knowledge or wisdom. He says that he is praying specifically for a spiritual knowledge and wisdom, a spiritual knowledge of God himself. And again, we see a pattern for this in Scripture as well. Let's go to the next verse. We'll go to the next slide. In Exodus chapter 31, when God had his people build the tabernacle where he himself would reside, he actually used his spirit to equip his people for the task at hand. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bazalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. You see, God didn't just give this man the spirit of knowledge so that he himself could be puffed up with knowledge. He gave him the spirit of knowledge in order to equip him to build and prepare the dwelling place of God. In the same way, God gives us as a church the spirit of knowledge and wisdom so we can build up his presence, so we can build up the place where he resides, which is the body of Jesus Christ, the church. We are called to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ, to teach and admonish and to build each other up as a church because we believe that this is where God resides and where he dwells and where he makes himself known to a lost world. And just like God needed to spiritually equip this man with knowledge to prepare his dwelling place, he also needs to do the same thing with us. That's why he gave us the Spirit. That's why we study his word. Not just because it's our favorite subject or it interests us or it gives you what you need to get through the week. No, it gives you what you need to obey God by making disciples and fulfilling his great commission. Let's go to the next verse. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom 
and of revelation and the knowledge of him. And then finally, the next verse. Isaiah 11, verse 1 and 2. The same thing is used even to describe Jesus. When God predicts his Messiah, he says that this person, this man, will have the Spirit come down on him with knowledge and with wisdom. We see that play out when Jesus is baptized. And then here's the final verse in Deuteronomy. Look at this. God says, See, I have taught you statues and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. This is Moses that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Could Graham say the same thing about Graham Emanuel Baptist Church? Do we even know or remember what our name even means? Emmanuel. It's made up of two Hebrew words that means God with us. If we actually believe that God is with us, then those who don't know God should be able to see God with us. It should be obvious to them. When we come to church to learn, to grow, to be spiritually fed, it is not just for our own benefit. It is for the benefit of God's glory using us to impact others, to go forth and to multiply spiritually as a result of how God has equipped us. No name change will do it. No new program will do it. A bigger budget will not do it. But a holy and focused and faithful people Seeking God like Epaphras, seeking God like the Colossians, and seeking him in such a way that they want to apply and live out what they know about God in their lives, that will have a multiplying effect on the world. Pray with me. Dear God, we ask you that the spirit that you have given us, that resides in our heart, that you will use it in us, that you will use him to equip us, to give us the words and the obedience needed in order to fulfill your great commission, in order to disciple our children, in order to outreach and love our neighbors, in order to dialogue with our coworkers. May we grow in you. May you give us more faith and a greater knowledge of you so that we can make you greater known where we live. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me send you out by again reading Psalm 67, verse 1 and 2. Pay attention to these words. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that his way may be known on earth and his saving power known among the nations. Go in peace.